One Sunday, a year ago, I preached my first sermon here at Bethlehem as pastor. And so this is the anniversary of, of one year here for me. And looking back on the year, I have two chief emotions. Lots more, but these are the ones that, as I thought about it this week, came to the fore. One is a sense of weakness and inadequacy to fulfill this very high and holy calling. And the other is a sense of the tremendous mercy of God to meet my need, namely, always. The first emotion is usually felt as a mingling of fear and guilt. Guilt because I'm afraid that I have done something that might be harmful to the church in some decision or some word, or that I've left something undone that ought to have been done by a responsible pastor. And fear that tomorrow's crisis or tomorrow's burden might be too complex and too heavy to bear. And that second emotion of humbling gratitude to God is humbling because it's been my experience that the times when my pride is most thoroughly broken and abased are the times when, at the end of my own resources, God has met my need. Most of the tears shed in the first year of the pastorate have not been tears of tragedy. They have been tears of victory. Again and again, I have entered situations afraid and God has rebuked me with mercy. Those are strange tears. A mingling of joy and gratitude and sorrow and repentance, all in one, a very strange experience, but repeated and real. I can't understand with any empathy or any appreciation what goes on inside a person who looks at the cross of Christ or perceives the power of God exercised on his behalf and derives from that a sense of worthiness. It's just the opposite with me, in my experience. When I catch a glimpse of Calvary love, my first response is not, oh, how worthy I must be that one would die for me. It seems like that's a very common response today. And mine is just the opposite. When I catch the clearest glimpse of Calvary love, I feel what a foul, heart of sin I must have that I had to have an atonement so excruciating to cover all my sin. How horribly lukewarm is my love and my trust and my obedience and my adoration towards such a worthy Savior. It's the same thing when God meets my needs in some situation and He has done it repeatedly in this year. He comes to me all unaware and makes me own his 
loving care. And my response is not to come away feeling, oh, how worthy I was of such grace. I come away rather feeling broken and abased that in spite of my fear and my half-hearted trust, He met me with mercy. And I'm amazed and struck down that He would condescend with such mercy, free mercy, even to me. Those are my two main emotional responses. Fear because of a sense of my insufficiency for the task and gratitude because of a deep sense of God's merciful sufficiency. And you must understand this confession as a confession of sin on my part and a confession of faith and hope. I do believe that God is merciful, that I am one of His elect children, that He will magnify His mercy in my weakness. But I know that most of my fear is sinful. It does not come from faith in His promises. It comes from unbelief. For example, the telephone is a wonderful invention. I just said to Noel as I picked it up the other day to call, I forget who, I just held it there and said, this is an amazing invention. For 1,800 years, no pastor could do what I can do. I can be in touch with any of 800 members in one minute. Nobody has been able to do that for centuries. What a blessing. But it works the other way, too. And there are peculiar emotional fallouts because of the invention of the telephone. Not only is the flock more accessible, so is the shepherd more accessible. It's easy to become paranoid about a ringing telephone. I suppose that just about every time the phone rings at home, I get a knot in my stomach. It's never experienced before I entered the pasture. Every time that phone rings, I go, just like this. And... The reason is because I'm, I'm afraid that when I pick up that phone, there's going to be a question I can't answer, an emotional wrenching for which I have no words of solace, a crisis I'm not up to, or just anything that might be such a, an intrusion that I can't get the sermon finished for Sunday. And you know the reason for that kind of emotional response to the telephone? Pride and unbelief. Period. Pride because I'm so taken up with myself that I'm afraid some weakness might be exposed in talking with another person. Some inadequacy. And I don't want that to happen. So I'm afraid. And unbelief because I'm not resting in the promised sufficiency of God. Emotionally resting in His promises. Pride and unbelief. And that's just a little example. I could multiply that of how the battle has shaped up for me in this first year. And it's not a unique battle. It's the same battle you all fight every day. The battle to take God at His word. To rest in His promised sufficiency. And to obey without being impeded 
by any sense of fear or anxiety. And since it's not a unique battle, you'll let me this morning, I hope, preach myself a sermon. To try to oppose and fight back at Satan and my own flesh and defeat my tendencies to fear and pride. Now you listen to this sermon too because whenever Jesus speaks, there's something for everybody. The text is Matthew 10, verses 24 to 33. And if you want to reach for a Bible there in the pew, I really want you to look at this with me because I'm going to follow his line of thinking in detail here and try to step by step beat back fear in me and in you and leave us feeling free from fear when we're done because of some things Jesus has said. I'm going to read it again. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So, have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, utter in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim upon the housetops. And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground without your father's will. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. It's clear what the main point of this text is. The main point is, Jesus' disciples, let me put in a parenthesis here, this text is addressed to disciples, not to the world at large. And one of my prayers this morning is that anybody hanging on the fringes of discipleship might make their commitment hearing how valuable discipleship is from these words. These words are addressed to people who have made Jesus their Lord and Savior. So, the main point of the text is, you disciples should not fear anything except Him who can throw both soul and body into hell, namely God. You can see... That fearlessness is the main point of the text because it's repeated three times. It's commanded. And all the rest of the text is argument for why we should be fearless. Verse 26. So have no fear of them. Verse 28. Do not fear those who can kill the body. Verse 31. Fear not. Three times. So what Jesus is trying to do is to fortify the hearts of his disciples against fear. He's trying to help me as pastor not be fearful, but to be free. So I can answer the phone without having my stomach not up. He's trying to free me from my self-centeredness that has a view to blessing whoever that is that's calling. Not worry about how I come off. That's what Jesus is aiming here for me and I think also for you as well. And the way he aims to do this is by his word. 
One year in the pastorate has confirmed what I've believed for many, many years, namely, the Word of God changes people most deeply. It's the Word of God, not the Word of Piper or the Word of any particular spokesman for any particular view in the world. It's the Scripture that changes people and leads them and liberates them for a life of fearless, authentic, loving service in the church. Jesus argues with words for fearlessness. He reasons with us. Jesus reasons with us. He wants to change these deep down knots, these emotions that govern our lives, but he goes at them through the head, doesn't he? Through the ear, through the mind. And that's the way every preacher should go at the emotions as well. The Word of God on the wings of the Holy Spirit can create sons of Abraham out of stones and can overcome fear in a wavering pastor's heart. It is powerful. And I am glad as a pastor that I am not shut up to my own resources when I stand in this pulpit. In fact, I was thinking about my future as I look back on the past and I said to myself Friday, I cannot think of anything that God could bless me with greater than to grant me the enablement to preach this word for the rest of my life with greater understanding and greater conviction and greater power from year to year. There are four reasons now that Jesus gives in this text for why I as the pastor, you as lay ministers, should not be fearful. And I want to look at these four in turn and just move right through the text. Notice in verse 26 that the first command, have no fear of them, is preceded by the little word, so or therefore, and is followed by the little word for or because. Now what that means is that we should look before that command for a reason why it should be said, and we should look after that command for another reason why it should be said. And that's what we want to do first. So I think the first reason for the command, have no fear of them, must be given in verse 25 rather than in what follows. Verse 25 says, If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, that is, the prince of demons, how much more will they malign those of his household? Now that's a strange sentence to follow with, Therefore, have no fear of them. You would expect him to say, Nevertheless, have no fear of them. Wouldn't you? But he doesn't. He says, Therefore, or so, have no fear of them. The argument seems to me to be something like this. If in your effort to be Christ-like, you encounter the ill will of people, don't jump to the fearful conclusion that you have failed and God has abandoned you. That would be fearful indeed. But you need not have that fear because that is not the necessary conclusion. On the contrary, if he argues, Christ, the meekest of all men, encountered ill will from his opponents. How much more can you count on it 
And therefore, you mustn't jump to the conclusion that your opposition, the slander, whatever trouble is coming your way, means that you have failed. On the contrary, it's a sign of Christ-likeness, isn't it? I find it a great help in overcoming fear that the master of my life says to me ahead of time, trouble is coming and it's not necessarily your fault. That gives such a stability to life, doesn't it? To know that to encounter opposition, slander, ill will, is your daily bread if you live in the household of Jesus. It takes one of the stingers out of slander to just expect it. You're not knocked off as easily. Here's what Peter said in his letter, chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you to prove you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. One of the elements of fear is the unexpected. We tend to be more nervous, more anxious, if we meet something in life totally unexpected. It knocks us off guard. It pushes us off balance. It creates the sensation that things are out of control. There is nothing but aimless absurdity. And Jesus sweeps all that away by telling us very matter-factly ahead of time, you can count on it. If they maligned me, they will malign you. So just relax and take it. You need not be taken off guard. You need not lose your emotional balance. You need not think that life is absurd or aimless. Everything's quite under control. I have seen it and I have predicted it. And you can be firm and strong. Therefore, we ought not to fear. On the contrary, we ought to be comforted that we have signs that we indeed are living in Christ's household. How can you fear if you have Jesus as the Lord of your house? That's the first argument for why we shouldn't be afraid of men. Now the second argument comes in verse 26. Have no fear of them, for, and that always introduces an argument, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. I'd love to just take the time to have you explain to me how that's an argument for fearlessness. How does that take away fear? Isn't one of the things that makes being slandered so fearful is the thought that the slanderers might be so successful that everybody's persuaded they're right. And truth never comes to light. That makes ill will and slander a fearful thing indeed. What if those who said Jesus is Beelzebub persuaded everybody and the contrary truth never came to light? Then slander would be a fearsome thing indeed. A significant element in fear, the fear of being wronged, is the thought that the wrong may not ever be righted. But Jesus assures his disciples here, the wrongs will be righted. 
he assures this pastor that all truth will be out. Every evil word spoken against the sons of God will be brought to light and his children will be totally exonerated. Someday it is going to be completely manifest that Jesus is not Beelzebul. He is the Lord of the universe and his disciples are not fools and little demons. They are the sons of almighty God. The whole universe is going to be lit up by the light of the glory of the children of God. And the mouth of every opponent will be eternally stopped. Therefore, do not be afraid. They will not have the last word. God has the last word. Now, the point of verse 27, which follows, I think, is that even before the last day, when everything will come to light, and all wrongs will be righted, and all truth will appear, even before that day, you should begin to be about the business of declaring the truth of Christ and his disciples. What I tell you in the dark, utter in the light. What you have heard, whispered, proclaim upon the housetops. The background seems to be this. In Jesus' earthly life, he kept a fairly low profile. He did not look like the Lord of the universe when he hung on the cross. But he tells his disciples, now, cut loose. Tell everybody. Open all the doors. Don't keep anything secret. Let the whole world know I am not Beelzebul. You are not fools. That seems to be the point here. Even before the day of revelation, go ahead and begin to reveal these things for the sake of people who might believe. But the real promise the really assuring thing in this second argument for why we should be fearless is that whatever evil men speak against us, whatever ill will may come up, we, we need not fear because that is going to be exposed. It is going to be righted. And that psalm I read for the call to worship is such a beautiful confirmation of this. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Do not be envious of those who do wrong because very soon they're going to fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Do right. Trust the Lord. And He will make your righteousness shine like the sun. That is a tremendous comfort whenever you're in a leadership position. You simply do not need to fret at all kinds of misunderstandings that arise. Great peace. And freedom from fear comes. Third reason is given in verse 28. Why we need not fear what man can do to us. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now this is an amazing verse. Who today would talk like this? in the midst of trying to encourage us to be free from fear, Jesus tosses this word, fear him who can cast soul and body into hell. Fear doing anything that would cause you to be cast away from God. Now, how does that help us to become fearless of men? Most people today don't see how it can at all, so they never say things like that. But it's really quite simple. I think the fear of man is one of the main reasons that we sin. Isn't that the case? 
you fail to follow through on some prompting of the Holy Spirit and cut him off because of the fear of man. And what Jesus is saying here is the penalty for those sins is vastly more to be feared than anything man can do and therefore fear not men, fear God. Verse 33 says, Whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven. That's a devastating statement. Why do we usually deny Christ before men? Fear of men. Fear of the wrong thing. What we ought to fear is denying Jesus before men. Because if we deny Him, He's going to deny us before God, and God is going to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's very, very simple. Children can understand that kind of reasoning. And therefore, Jesus is indeed trying to free us from fear. Fear of men. Fear of losing prestige. Fear of losing money. Fear of criticism. Fear of anything we might encounter in this world by giving us a proper fear of God. The fear of God is a very liberating experience. But there's another reason why verse 28 is amazing. It shows how radically otherworldly, radically otherworldly, the values of Jesus are. We say, oh no, we could even be killed. And Jesus says, fear not, you can only be killed. You hear what our Lord is saying? How utterly out of step with humanity Jesus is? How foreign He is to the values of this world? Fear not. You can only be killed. <laughs> the only way to find comfort in a statement like that is to experience a revolution of your values. A new birth through the Holy Spirit. The reason we fear is when our ultimate values are threatened. Right? You only fear when your values are threatened. So when Jesus says, fear not, you can only be killed, what he's telling us is what our values should be. This earthly life and all its precious attachments of wife and children and job and pleasures are not ultimately valuable. What we must replace them with is life in God. Confessing Jesus' name before men is more valuable than life. Choose death before you choose to deny me. If anyone would come after me and be my disciple, he must hate his mother and father and wife and children and brothers and sisters and even his own life also. Then he can be my disciple. When you set out to follow Jesus, you surrender earthly life as an ultimate value. And in its place, you put the life of the soul in God. Eternity is more important than time on earth. Hell is more to be feared than any suffering encountered for Jesus' sake. 
Union with God is more to be desired than all the pleasures that one can possibly have in the world. And if that revolution of values happens in your mind and in your heart, then you'll be able to understand fully and be comforted by the sentence, Fear not. You can only be killed. One last argument from verses 29 to 31. Why we should not fear. And who but Jesus and Jonathan Edwards, who but Jesus and Jonathan Edwards would put back to back the fearfulness of God who casts soul and body into hell and the tenderness of God who cares for every sparrow in the world. Not many people, but he does it. The argument seems to go like this. Sparrows are of very, very little value. Very, very little value. Nevertheless, step two, God so concerns himself with the life of sparrows that not one little bird in all the world dies apart from God's will. Third, you are of much more value than the sparrows. For, therefore, how much more will God concern himself with your existence so that nothing befalls you apart from his gracious will? And the reason we know his will is gracious and not evil towards us is that he says he is our father. Not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from your father's will. And you remember what Jesus taught about God's fatherhood. He said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? God's will for His children is good things, good things, and only good things. Then Jesus adds this one other ingredient, verse 30. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. God knows us minutely. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Nobody in this room knows how many hairs are on your head. And the point is, God knows you infinitely. Knows you better than you know yourself. He knows your needs perfectly. He has counted and named, I think we could say, every hair on your head. And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will. So there are three things in this last argument that conspire to give us peace and to take away fear. One, God knows us perfectly. Two, God governs our lives and the world minutely. Not a bird falls apart from His will. And three, God cares for us with fatherly concern. Now, how does that comfort? When the sparrow still falls to the ground, they still kill the body. It comforts if we have the mind which was also in Christ Jesus. When we have the values of Jesus, we need not be assured of peace and security in earthly life. It will be enough to know that our Father in heaven loves us deeply, knows us intimately 
and governs us so completely that everything that befalls us is for our good. And so don't be afraid of anything except unbelief. Now, in conclusion, there are dozens and dozens of things I'd like to say as a a one-year-old pastor to this congregation. Dozens of thank yous. Some of those I want to say tonight, and I hope all of you who are involved in Sunday school will come back. Countless praises to God I could recount for you to hear and share in. I do not take for granted the kindness and the patience of you people towards this green pastor over the past year. You are a remarkable people. The Holy Spirit is at work in this place with sanctifying power. I have been the beneficiary of that more than you know. And it is my great desire to be a better pastor this next year. A pastor who serves and pours himself out for the eternal good of your souls. I don't care very much about your material prosperity. I care very much about the eternal good of your souls and the authenticity of your life in Christ. And my prayer is that no fear, no knots in the stomach will in any way impede me on the way to this service. And may God help us together to trust His Word and be free.